0: Ten seconds of Grizz. Ten seconds of good times roll. That's all we're allowed according to podcast rules and regulations. I mean, I'm just kind of kidding, but that's what they say. If you look up podcasting, how to make a successful podcast on the internet, it's one of the things they say you shouldn't have an intro that's longer than ten seconds. Our intro is a little bit longer than ten seconds. Uh, it's dope music. Um, we secured it before TNT did ahead of the NBA basketball playoffs. Welcome to this the Red Bulletin podcast. I'm your host Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of sports, adventure, science, culture, music. Today's guest comes from music. Uh, his name is Tommy Sunshine. He's an absolutely well. You know, honestly, he can't have another name besides that name. That's it's a perfect name. It's one he's given himself. He's he's got this beautiful head of luxuriant hair. He's really cool eye frames. He's he wearing a floral print shirt when we saw him. Um, he's got this kind of big Lebowski bearing and, and the way he just kind of wafted into our studios, like the celestial being he is, made, uh, made quite an impression. He's one of the pioneers, uh, I'll say a pioneering personality in the electronic music scene. Um, We're going to talk to him about the growth of that scene, uh, which has been absolutely exponential in the last decade. He was there in the mid-80s. He was the only white guy at a party in the south side of Chicago where house music was first really kind of birthed and played. Uh, We'll talk to him about that journey from that point uh, to becoming a successful DJ and producer to the point where he realized that taking a whole bunch of drugs probably wasn't the best way forward and got sober and the confidence that gave him. So what I think is really interesting about this, uh, one of the the interesting takeaways I had uh, from this conversation was uh, just the way in which um, atypical of people of his generation, I feel he embraces youth culture and embraces uh, the opinions and thoughts of young people. And he really has this thirst to understand uh, electronic music from their perspective and see how it correlates with, with the way he sees it and he saw it throughout his career and his life. So let's get right to it. Tommy Sunshine, thank you very much for uh, taking some time out today. I know you're kind of action-packed in the last couple of weeks and coming forward. Yeah, I'm surfing a tidal wave right now. I feel like you're always kind of surfing a tidal wave, though. That's not just because you're wearing floral print shirt at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, it's been been crazy, and
1: we're revving up to, you know, it's going to be a crazy year. I've got an album coming out. There's all kinds of projects brewing, so it's good.
0: It's good. Let's take it back to the to the very beginning. Where were you when you first heard the electronic music that now shapes your life? Well,
1: I mean, I, I was very
0: lucky. I had older brothers and
1: sisters, so I'm the youngest of four kids. And my oldest sister graduated high school in 1976, so she was a disco queen. Like, she would get ready to go out and she lived at home till she was like twenty-one. So by the time she graduated high school, like riding out the seventies, she was going out like five, six nights a week to the disco and she would she was she was a hairdresser. It's like so like Saturday so, night fever. No, totally. It's like so stereotypical. But she was a hairdresser and you know, she would go out almost every night and while she would get ready, she would blast disco. And I, you know, four or five years old would be, you know, right at, right at her knees like dancing along with her as she was putting on makeup before she would go out. And that was just, that became part of my childhood was just constantly listening to disco. And You know, that's where I first heard Kraftwerk, and that's where I first heard Donna Summer and Maroder and, you know, all this incredible electronic disco. And then my sister, who's uh, one year younger, uh, she went off to college, and then she came back from college with, like, soft sell and, like, you know, new wave music. And so that was, you know, that was kind of the next chapter. And then to kind of throw a wrench in it, my brother was in a punk band when he was in high school. So that that was the Dead Kennedys and the Sex Pistols and and all of that kind of all collided in then being in the suburbs. And, you know, like every other suburban kid, I was listening to Guns N' Roses and, you know, NXS and, you know, living just being like an 80s kid. But I was sleeping out for concert tickets one night. I think it was actually four NXS tickets. And... I was, I was, gosh, I, was young. I wasn't even old enough to drive. I was such a young kid, but my parents left one of their cars. So, you know, Chicago's cold. So, like, at night it would get really cold. And they left one of their cars so I could sleep in the car and then get back in line in the morning for tickets. And I was flipping through the channels late at night, and I came across WBMX, which was the radio station in Chicago that played commercial-free house music on Friday and Saturday nights. And you know it was the Saturday night ain't no uh, what was it Saturday night ain't no jive dance party, Saturday night live ain't no jive dance party was was uh, was BMX's thing, and uh, there were these guys the Hot Mix Five, and they changed my life. I mean, I heard this music, and. You know, I was a bit of a hippie kid as well. So I, you know, I was listening to Hendrix and the Dead, and you know, really s- steeped in the, in the Beats and all of that. So I was already kind of in counterculture as a teenager in the suburbs. So I was like as much of
0: an outcast as anybody could be. And you know, what, what were what was the mainstream? What were the the jocks listening to that? in the chicago suburbs
1: billy joel and the steve miller band you know what i right. mean like not, not and not good i mean billy joel's great but not right. good billy joel
0: like crap billy joel you know like pressure which is actually yeah. a great name for a new band <laughs> crap <What>? billy joel <laughs> crap billy joel ladies and gentlemen crap billy joel
1: but but you know it was it was that moment of hearing that music on the radio and i said to myself i said you know i've been looking for like what our, like, my generation's hippie thing was going to be. And the first time I heard Acid House, my jaw hit the floor. And I was like, this is it. The sound of the 303 is like, you know, that's R. Hendrix. You know, like, that's what that is. And... And I started going to the city. I started seeking out parties. I started going to a club called Medusa's, which did like an early show where they let like
0: underage kids in. And I have to, I have to interject here that Chicago is, you know, for those people who don't know, Chicago is widely considered as the birthplace for house music, right? Is
1: Absolutely. It? Yeah, yeah. And and we got such a good run because it was like not only were we hearing the beginning of house music. But Wax Tracks was also in Chicago, so we got industrial music as well. So they were playing, you know, Early Acid House alongside Nitsareb and Front 242 and Ministry. And it was just such a beautiful hodgepodge of music when when that was all coming together. And those early parties, I mean, you know, I, I could get emotional if I talk about them long enough because there was nothing we were referencing nothing there was there was no there was nothing that came before to try to emulate because it wasn't studio 54 there wasn't a red velvet rope at the door you know you were in a loft on the south side of chicago with a strobe light and those parties were very very black and very very gay and a kid a white kid from the suburbs strolling into these parties people were like the hell's this dude doing here you know what i mean like it was really you know i stuck out and after a while like they were like well i guess he's not going to go away so we
0: should probably make friends with him what what were you dressing up in at this point i'm just trying to create an image to 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 kind of Near the image that's sitting across from me now,
1: I was in purely polyester clothing from vintage vintage right. stores, and that right. was that was long before that was a thing. You know, like when Delight came out, and they were all they all looked like that. Yeah, we were like. Oh, that's our people. Like we understand that cuz we were doing the same thing in Chicago. So the club kids and the house kids, you know, we were all in like 70s like, you know, po- polyester everything, bell bottoms, you know, corduroy bell bottoms and yeah. shirts that were way too tight with like collars that were
0: like, you know, from shoulder to shoulder and Why was why was Chicago really the spot for this? Was it was it something about the city that it allowed? Was it just such a massive city that allowed Allowed for these various kind of scenes to serendipitously come together and find themselves, or is it is it something about was it was it uh, for you like a respite for for the Chicagoans was a respite from like a you know I don't know crime riddled corruption riddled city what what was it was there were there circumstances that particularly made this the spot for that you know I mean I I think you have to
1: remember that Chicago you know house music is not the first music to really spring out of chicago i mean chicago played a big part in blues you know chess records was a huge part of the blues scene chicago was a huge jazz city like you know it's and again industrial music was you know that the ground base there you know in the in the 80s was chicago as well so there's always been such a creative spring in in the Midwest. And I think it's because Chicago is the most cosmopolitan city smack in the middle of the country. So it's not L.A. It's not New York. But, you know, it is it is the one place that kind of, you know, makes it out of you know, the farm mentality and and actually is a
0: cosmopolitan city. Well, and with, it's a beacon for folks like yourself, right? I ab- mean, all the outcasts, so to speak, all the, the Absolutely.
1: weirdos. I mean, you know, and, and... and The John Hughes film kids, basically. I mean, he that's where he was from. All those films are shot in the Chicago suburbs. I mean, like, that was, you know, all, all of those movies were shot within 30 minutes from where I grew up. So, I mean, that was my... Growing up, it was Breakfast Club. It was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but you know, just with Frankie Knuckles in the soundtrack.
0: <laughs> Legendary house producer Frankie <laughs> Knuckles. We should say not not a local mobster. No. <laughs> yeah, totally right. 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 <laughs> um, and and at home, I mean, was it was it something that uh, you know? How was home life? Was it you know, were your parents encouraging of your of your early fascination with the music of your late night exploits? Well, you know what? I didn't get it from my parents.
1: I got it from my grandmother and my grandfather. It was my my mother's mother was a flapper in the 20s who used to stay up for three days at a time. Dancing to jazz. You have proof of that? That's amazing. She told me. Like I mean like I I was very like when she was on her way out she she sat me down and 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 told me uh wild some wild stories which I'll leave the details out of cuz she was she was definitely a partier and they would stay up for two or three days you know riding around in the rumble seat like going from jazz party to jazz party you know drinking illegal liquor and and dancing all night and and that was her and that was my mother's mother and then my father's father Uh, he spent a great deal of the 20s at the Cotton Club in Harlem. So, you know, he was living in New Jersey, working in a slipper factory and was sneaking away to Harlem and uh, and was, was going to the Cotton Club. So, like, you know, that's where it is. I mean, that's in my DNA. Like, that, okay, where is this scene that's going on that no one knows about that's totally steeped in subculture? That's completely subversive, and that's a really fucking good time.
0: And they had that, and it it got passed down to me. And you, and when did you make the transition from being just a fan of it and a frequenter of parties to actually kind of experimenting with with uh, with mixing and and with producing your own music?
1: Well, what's funny is I I went out for about six or seven years before I even thought about being a DJ. And right. it wasn't even my idea. It was it was the, the promoters were like, you're at every party. Like, will you just, like, make this legit and just start spinning? Because you're here anyway, so we might as well put you on the bill. Right. And I, I used to play in the second room at all the raves, and I would play this bizarre pastiche of early hip-hop, disco, Manchester music, like, you know, New Wave, and and I just, I saw no boundaries in the way that I would play, and I would play a Depeche Mode record, and then I would play a Public Enemy record, and then a Happy Mondays record, and and then maybe an early Acid House record, and all of that seemed completely...
0: Congruent to me. Were you DJing for a crowd, or were you oh, yeah. DJing for yourself? Was no. it was it was your philosophy? Is like I want to keep the dance floor packed, or was it more? um I've got a artistic. This is my form of artistic expression.
1: Well, when I started, I was probably on more drugs than anybody in the room. So, I mean, I, I, it was coming from a party perspective. I mean, it was like, okay, we're in the second room at a rave there's 500 people in this room so thanks for coming to to my parents basement i'm going to play some music for you and we're going to we're going to party together and that was the mentality yeah and and you know and i was a kid then so it really was that perspective and it was like hey hey friends let me play some t- some tunes and right. that's it was just that simple and and you know, and I didn't care about mixing and I didn't even think about mixing. It was, you know, how do you mix, you know, the Stone Roses into the Wu-Tang clan? <laughs> you really, don't. Yeah. You 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 transition the records. Yeah. And but but we were having so much fun and it, it gained momentum. And at some parties, you know, they would pay somebody to come from halfway across the country to be the headliner in the main room, and there would be as many people in the room I was playing in while I was playing Howard Jones records. And, you know, and
0: just, we were just having a blast. And what gave you the courage to go from, to, because it, it, it is a big deal getting up and, and being the guy who's setting the tone in the room with, with, through the music that he plays. What gave you the courage to, to, to get up there and actually do it? You, you know what? I, I don't even think it was much courage. I think it was a compulsion.
1: I, I think I had to create. I think I had reached a point where I I wasn't creative. I was just you know well I, I guess I mean you know going out and and crafting some sort of bizarro seventies polyester like look is just as creative as anything else. So I mean you know my crea- my creativity was was just funneled into different things. And right. once I had the opportunity and and realized what that transaction is and like. How you really can connect with people you know, on such an intimate level, musically. I mean, that was incredibly infectious. And once I got a taste of that, I was like, yeah, well, you're never going to get me out of this. Like, sorry, you're stuck with me. You know, I'm going to be doing this forever. What was your
0: day job at the time?
1: Oh, gosh, different things. I mean, I I, I was a handyman for a while. So, Uh, you know, I'd be out on the weekends playing records on Friday nights at house parties, you know, uh, sucking down nitrous balloons and then going to work on Monday and and trying to figure out how to measure crown molding and screwing it up so many times I'd have to get in the van and go back to the hardware store. Because, you know, after like a dozen failed attempts, I was like, oh, I have to stop this. This is ridiculous. But it was, you know, I mean... Just whatever we you know, we were just working wherever we could work so that we could just get enough money so did, we could go out on the weekends.
0: Did you get fired from jobs? Of
1: course. Yeah. I mean I actually I I actually this is this is uh something I wear as a badge of honor. I have not had a boss since two thousand one. So I have, I have worked and existed boss-free since 2001. But previous to that, I got fired from every job I ever had, which I love. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> on that. I, I, I don't know why I think that's great, but I definitely do. Well, <laughs> I mean, I
0: guess you think it's great because that's kind of the life that all of us would, would like. We wouldn't mind getting fired if we knew that we could end up... Spinning records in Ibiza and London, and you know, I don't even know where else. Miami, I mean, you throw out some Uruguay, I'm sure is popping. Was that Punta del Este down there?
1: I've been to some pretty crazy
0: places, <laughs> right? Where's the craziest place he's spun?
1: Um. Well, I mean I played a couple of shows with Bjork in Iceland, so that was that was pretty wild. So I mean, was that, that was...
0: when Iceland was weird, like in the nineties or uh it was
1: in two thousand one. Yeah, so it was still weird. Still weird. You know, like they were still doing the, the, the airwaves or whatever the festival is over right. there. So that, that was that had started, but it was I mean, you know, no people were not flocking there in droves or anything. And right. That, that's a pretty dire place. Like you've you've really gotta you really gotta like you know be ready for that. But I I, I did um, I played three or four times in Kiev and that was really cool. Like before, I mean, I would never go back there now. It's a little volatile at it's the a moment, sketch, so yeah, I yeah. think I'll give it a decade. But yeah. but it was uh, those parties were really wild, and and Australia is great. I've done yeah. I've done over over ten tours in Australia that yeah. have just been unhinged. So I mean, it's you know. I played in Shaw Studios in, in, uh, in Hong Kong
0: where they filmed all the Bruce Lee movies. That was That's pretty cool. <laughs> but I mean, but, but you're talking about all these disparate places and, and just the, the connectivity, the vernacular is, is the music you're playing.
1: You know, I mean, I, I think that one of the most beautiful things in, in the world is that if you really want to get down to it and you want to communicate with somebody – you know, language is, is often a blockade, you know, there's it's not easy a lot of the time. And, you know, it's great when you go to, like, Holland and you go to, you know, countries like that where they teach English in, in school. So everybody speaks English there. But when you start getting into Eastern Europe and you start getting deep into Asia and, like, you're kind of screwed. Like, no one speaks English. And, well, how can you communicate with people then? Well, we all love to dance. And who doesn't like to feel good? So you know, if if you can develop, um, you know, if you can develop that, and and then go to those places and see people in the crowd who are experiencing records, and although they might not understand the lyrics to the song, they still understand the lyrics to the song because they get the vibe. Sure, and that's powerful. And when you notice stuff like that, you really start to realize that, like, you know, there's, you know, sure, there's a lot of differences from one end of this of this planet to the other, but they become less and less. And how when when you involve music,
0: and how important are drugs to
1: that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think I think everybody, you know, has to find their psychedelic center on their own i mean i think that you know some people you know some people it it takes lsd some people don't need lsd some people can do yoga and they can get the exact same thing out of that than they can
0: from drugs would you say there was like a misconception early on that that electronic music was all about you know taking you know dropping lsd or taking ecstasy and then going out is that something that the scene had to fight to overcome oh no we took a shit ton of drugs right i mean
1: that 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 that's (laughs) that that definitely and you know and and there's and that still goes on but you know but see you know i would i i can't i can't say that you know at those early raves i mean you know me and my friends were like hunter s thompson 1 through 12 but like you know n- not everybody was like that i mean we were the extreme you know so there's always and you know and i don't i don't think those Percentages have changed much. I think you're gonna have this core of people who like throw the fuck down and like really, really get into it, and like you know their weekends start on Thursday and they end on Tuesday, and you know there's there's that, and then there's the people that go out and they have a couple of drinks, and that's about as crazy as they get.
0: Well, maybe that's all they need to unleash the dancing for piece sure, within, right? No, I mean, for it, sure, and yeah. you
1: know not everybody goes out to get fucked up. You know, yeah. I mean, like it's you know there's levels, but I, you know in even in that same perspective, I think that, you know, when you look at like, you know, people say that, you know, oh, now there's not as many people who are there for the music, you know, and and I can tell you firsthand from being there from the beginning, there was a small percentage of people who went out to those parties who truly lived for and loved the music. And everybody else in that room, Were tourists. They were there, and they're the ones that kept the lights on. You know what I mean? Like they're, you know, well, they were accepted, sure, and they and they they paid the bills, and and you know, people would come in, and they'd you know they'd dance around for you know twelve months, eighteen months, and then they'd disappear, and they'd be out, and they'd go have kids, and get out of college, and not listen to that music anymore, and. And I I would say that if you go to a festival and, you know, maybe there isn't 300 people at a loft in a bad part of town anymore. Now you're talking about, you know, a festival that's two or three days and there's 20, 30, 40,000 people a day at the festival. But I don't think that those percentages are different. I think there's, you still have the core. You have the people who love it. And then you have, you know, oh, well, you know, my boyfriend says this music is cool, so I come with him. And, oh, my my best friend loves to dance, so I'm here with her. And, you know, like it, it just, it all kind of goes that way. Yeah. But that's fine. And I'll tell you this, there is nothing else going on in culture right now
0: that is more positive and more necessary than what we're doing but it was going on in the 80s and the 90s. Was it just not heard in that sense, or was it, was it not under, critical? It was underground,
1: you know what I mean? Right. Like, it was just smaller. I mean, now it's massive, you know what I mean? Right. Like, if someone would have told me when I started DJing that one day there would be festivals that would be, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and and you would get, you know— 50,000 people at at these things and I would say no that'll never happen in America. Like, you know, maybe Europe. You could see it coming in Europe, but not here. I never thought it was going to happen here. And I, and I think the biggest snafu of it happening here is that not only has this become popular culture, but we somehow tricked popular culture into accepting what is, at its root, a very, very subversive drug culture. Right. And it is now pop culture.
0: That's that's a very, very clear way of putting it, actually. What – so – I was going to ask. My next question was actually going to be about the purity of the scene and whether it's been maintained, but that kind of throws that one out the window. Um, but is it? <laughs> but it has. But there, I mean, you know. So what does it stand for today, as opposed to what it stood for back then? Well, I mean,
1: you know, when when again, I, I I I don't really think that it's changed much. I mean, there's 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 people that would argue with me. You know, there's there's plenty of people that would say to the contrary, but but i believe that that there were the you know it was two teams you know it was it was the, the 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 people that were there because they wanted to preserve the culture and they loved the music and all of it meant something i was one of those kids and then there the other kids were just there to party and you know
0: chase girls and take drugs and you know like raise hell and those same two teams are still there today Absolutely. In,
1: in equal amounts. Like in, in, I mean, it it really hasn't metamorphosized much. Yeah, It's just gotten bigger.
0: Yeah. You engage in your fair share of public commentary and, and in, uh, you know, refuting (laughs) what you would say. I would, I would say, I would say a a Twitter battle or two probably is in there. Um, uh, do you feel comfortable being the, being the advocate for the scene? Do you feel comfortable being the public spokesman as you were for the scene? Well, you, you
1: know, I mean, I, I, by no means do I think that I speak for anyone but myself. I mean, you know, I'm I'm incredibly outspoken. I'm an activist. I'm, you know, I'm a lot of things, and probably an asshole to a lot of people. Right. But, I mean, I I speak my mind, and you know, I, I why
0: well, I, why 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 do you do that? Like, what
1: drives you to do that? Oh, it's just who I am. I mean, I I could never be a I could never be a different person. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I I think that. It's um it's a blessing to have bandwidth. I think that you know there's there's plenty of opinionated people um today. You can find them in the comment section on YouTube typically. But um you know there's 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 a lot of people with opinions but they've got no they've got no voice. They have they have no broadcast. And I do. And I don't take that lightly. And I think that if I can talk about Human rights, and I can talk about the environment, and I can talk about politics, and I can talk about things that actually matter instead of like, you know, hey, bro, can't wait for the weekend. Like, I I think that that's necessary. And there are very few people that do that because everybody's about protecting their brand and about, like, well, I want to write this because this is how I really feel. But I wonder if that will upset anyone. I don't give a fuck about that. Like, I mean, if if you're if you're gonna get upset about something that I say, you know, change the channel, right? right. Like you sh- you shouldn't be hanging around like my my Facebook or my Twitter because it's only a matter of time before I'm gonna piss you off. So just right. get out of here before it happens. Right, right, right.
0: <laughs> how do you be? How do you feel about the commerce in in EDM now? You know, I mean, this is this went from as you said from the underground to. To a, I don't know. I mean, are we in the billions yet? Pasquale Rotella, what is he at? What is Insomniac at? I mean, I mean, they
1: were they were saying that that EDM was was a four four or five billion dollar industry, right? Four years ago,
0: yeah. So, yeah. I
1: mean, this is, we're, well, we're well into that. We're in multi-billions. Yeah. I how, mean, much, how much of
0: that have you seen, by the way?
1: Uh, not, not anywhere close. Not, I mean, not nearly enough. I mean, you know, you've got guys like Calvin Harris who clock in on Forbes, and they make like $67 million a year. That's insanity. That's insanity. I mean, like, there, there are, you know, that's, like, that's CEO money. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. that's, and, you know, how many, there's not very many people that make that kind of money. I
0: mean, do DJs deserve to make CDO money?
1: I mean, he's a very talented guy. You know right. what I mean? Like, I mean, he, he's written songs that, like, you know, that so many people in in our generation will sing for the rest of their lives. So, Sure. You know what I mean? Like, why not? Why doesn't he deserve that? You know, I mean, some right. someone does. I'd rather him have it than a promoter have it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, he's got a lot more to do yeah. with, like, you know, the memory. I mean, you know, they both have to do with the memories, but yeah. like, you know, it's it's um, yeah. Why yeah. not? You yeah. know, I mean, like, it's um, I I think that that we we've seen such a such a monumental growth in in you know the amount of money that it makes the amount of attention that it gets the amount of people and the influx of of personalities that that come through this scene now and all that really matters to me is that when i play a gig and i look out at the crowd and i see you know people are on their phone they're busy taking pictures and you know taking video and They're not in the moment, you know, they're, 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 they're detached. We're living in a very strange time for that. But as long as there's always, you know, as long as I stand there and I look out into the crowd and I see one person dancing with their eyes closed alone, they're not with their friends and they're just having it every, every time I see that. That presses the reset button, and I'm, I'm good for another 10 years. And, and I always see it. There's, there's always someone in, in any room, any festival. There's always someone that's having that same transcendental experience that I had the first time I heard electronic music. And as long as I always see that,
0: we're good. It's almost like a, a secret kind of signal like a bat signal to all the like <laughs> the heads who actually appreciate. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, and, and and it's it's like anything. I mean, you know, I mean that come on, you have people at Comic-Con like arguing about like all the people that come to Comic-Con now and sure. how it's and how it's all sold out. It's yeah. like <laughs> it's it's a comic book convention, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. so I mean, you're you're always gonna get that, you right. know what I mean? There, there's always gonna be, you know, I mean, what's what's the, the 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 saying that I swear by is, you know, pioneers get the arrows, settlers get the land. You know, I mean, like, you know, we were we were dodging arrows for all of the '90s. You
0: what know? were your arrows? Oh gosh! I well, mean, you mentioned drugs earlier. I sure. Mean, when did that When did that stop being the part of an equation to a Tommy Sunshine night out? Well, I I am in in
1: April. I'm eleven years sober.
0: Oh, congrats, man! Right so, yeah, yeah, thank
1: you. I mean, it, it's you know, it's a very different life now. Right, you know, I I have complete thoughts, and I can get stuff done and tie my shoes now. So that's that helps.
0: What prompted that decision to make that a very difficult decision, actually?
1: You know, it it I, I saw, I saw that electronic music was was coming. I could see the tidal wave. You know, I I could see it coming, and th- and that would have been you know two thousand five. So it was it was rolling in, and and I knew that. That I either was going to be a sacrifice, or I was going
0: to be riding riding the wave, like one ex raver pushed to the bottom of the ocean, kind of a thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like I I I I was I I mean I
1: would have never made it through that initial two thousand nine like rock star like moment of EDM. Like I would have been the first one to like. Check out, you know what I mean? Like, right. cause I would have out partied everybody.
0: Right, I'm right. positive of that. Was there a pride in that too, for a while, and being the being that dude, the dude who showed up at all those spots?
1: Well, I mean, when when you when you grow up reading Burroughs and Kerouac and and you know Hunter Thompson and Ken Kesey, yeah, sure, you know what I mean. Like you know, you you want to be the one that, that you know you want to be the last man standing every weekend. Well, and, and it's
0: you see it as art. It's a purest expression of art. You just happen to have drugs that bring you there i mean you know that that was uh you know i was i was (laughs) i was
1: raging for a decade you know i mean i i always say i was living like i was in van halen for like 15 years because that's pretty much what it was like and you know and i have no regrets i mean every one of those experiences informed every single thing that i do every single day
0: so take me to the moment when you decided to go sober
1: Sure, um, it's funny. We were just kind of referencing this um, in standing in the lobby um, when it was the first year that South by Southwest connected with Miami. They the, the the two stretches held hands. So I went to South by, and I was in South by for five days, and then I flew from Austin to Miami for winter music conference and that was for 7 days. So for 12 days in a row I probably didn't eat a proper meal and every single day was gin and cocaine for 12 days. And by the time I got to the end of Miami I mean I don't remember much of the la- I don't remember much of Miami. Like, I mean, I hear stories, and it's a pastiche of details fed to me secondhand. But at that point, my rider was, was a champagne bucket and a bottle of gin on ice, and I would drink that bottle of gin like a Gatorade within the first 20 minutes of my set. And when you're drinking a bottle of gin, the only way you're going to stand up and not disappear into the ER is Coke, so that was just how it was. That was my that was my run, and after doing that, I I had a, a gig the following weekend in Lima, Peru. Not a good place for not somebody so who loves
0: cold turkey. Not no. not a good, not good so place much.
1: for someone who loves Coke. So right. so you know when I would go play in Lima, you know I I would you know i would go you know yeah. i would take i, I would i would uh, i would taste the taste the local flavor so you know they 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 would get me uh what i needed and and i went full on i was on the rails that night for sure and i woke up the next day and i had stayed an extra day cuz i wanted to see the city cuz beautiful city like peru is amazing and i woke up that morning and i looked at myself in the mirror And I said, oh, my God, who is this person? I don't know who that is. Like, and whoever that is, they look like shit. And in that singular moment, I was like, I'm either going to do this until it kills me or I'm going to stop. And I went home from Peru, and I've been sober ever since.
0: How difficult was it the first couple of days? You know, it, I was never an everydayer. Actually, let me let me rephrase that. So much of addiction is tied to moments as well. Right. Sure. How difficult was it when you came upon those first moments again where you would usually go for the Coke and go for the gin? you, you know what? It
1: was it was a lot easier than you'd think because I was so resolute about it. And I, I knew what I had to do. And I knew that none of what I'm doing now could have ever happened if I had continued down that road. I would have never had a a successful production career. I would have never been a successful DJ. I would have never been involved in television and doing all of these, these things that I'm now doing. You know, none of that would have been in the cards. I would have done none of that. And I would have just been a guy who was a DJ, who was a drug pig
0: and that's how I would have been remembered. Would it have been so that chapter was done then. Mm-hmm. And then did you know what the, how you would begin the next chapter? Was the was there the first paragraphs were they already written in your mind or was it was it kind of learning by doing or going down a path and seeing what came of it? I I've I've never I've never known what I was going to do ever. I wake up every morning
1: and I still don't know what I'm going to do. And there's do. power in that by the way, right? For sure. I mean, you know, when, when you can remain untethered and you can just kind of like surf the universe, some cool shit happens, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of like go, you go with what happens every day and you figure it out and you know, it's not, it's not, I would never recommend that life for everybody, you know, I mean, you have to be a very particular kind of person to understand that some days it's going to suck. And some days it's going to be great, and you have to be able to to deal with both, you know, because that's that's you know, or or you you know, you punch a clock, and you know what you you know exactly what your day is going to be every day. Right. But I could never do that. I mean, that yeah. was that was out of the cards for me. I knew that when I was a teenager. Right. right. I was like, there's there is no way that yeah. I'm going to eat someone's shit for forty yeah. hours a week, and
0: and figure that out I'll, I, I i couldn't do it yeah but that's crazy that you have that realization actually act on it that young an age you know it takes people into their i don't know late 30s mid 40s whatever you know to realize that there's a there's an alternate path but for those of those of the uh, for those listeners out there who want to quit their job where they're eating shit every day um when it does a couple of you know warning notes uh your name is Tommy Sunshine. You're a super positive dude. You look like the dude, actually. You've got super long hair. Um, you're wearing a floral print t-shirt, as already mentioned. Um, when it does suck, why does it suck? Well, I mean, you know, there there are days that I, that I wish
1: that there was some semblance of of routine in what I do. You know that that would be great. <laughs> I I I I miss that and long for it sometimes, but. You know, it, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm married to an artist as well, so my wife is. You know, she she's as much of a untethered
0: creative as I am, which is super important to have that because I mean, how can we fu- How can we function? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, if if we yeah. were not like both in that
1: in that realm, I don't think we we would have been able to to make it through life. Forget about making through a relationship, but I mean, it's. I mean, you know, and I, I think that that's actually it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, my, my marriage and and love as a concept plays such a huge part in my life. I, I am a lover. I am not a fighter. I mean, you know, I'm an activist. Yeah. But I'm an activist with love. Right. I, I'm not an angry activist. Right. You know, I'm not. Right. The, I'm not at the front screaming at people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there because I support the cause. Like, and and it's um, yeah, it's it's all about love. I mean that that's really what it is. I mean that's what got me sober. It's what's got me through every other part of my life. Is that I look at things, and and when you're interacting with people, you have to acknowledge that we're we're all just trying to figure it out. We're all doing the best that we can from, you know, with everything. We're just trying to make it through the day. We're just trying to make it work. Everybody is. So when someone's on the other side of a transaction and they're hard to deal with, you don't fight with those people. You walk away. And the main reason I walk away from stuff like that is I'm always afraid it's contagious. I don't want their shit. I don't want their negative, like, perspective to rub off on me. Right. It's like, oh, you're you're like that?
0: Godspeed. I'm right. out. Like right. you know, you, you deal with that. I'm not dealing with that. Well, it's one thing to do that when you're in a in a shop and the sales lady's being a bit of a bitch. It's another thing is if it's a I don't know like a contract negotiation or if it's something that's actually important to your livelihood, right? And and support. Like how do you how do you in, in, encounter? I mean, not encounter, but how do you overcome the cynicism in in those? interactions which are inherently cynical i mean you're in the music sure. industry it's you're in the tv industry now yep we should b- probably plug after the Rays. we haven't done that yet but anyway uh, oh i didn't well, know if i could well we could well of course man red bull on red bull you know <laughs> so but uh we'll we'll talk about that i do want to have a couple of questions of about that later but um, how do you overcome that cynicism in a, in a very very cynical industry
1: you don't play ball I mean that that's really all it is. It's I mean I just call bullshit on it straight away. It's like, you know, if I walk into a room and I I acknowledge that it's a hostile environment, I withdraw. I mean, that's it. Like I'm just I'm not, I don't play like that. Like it's like I'll come back when you calm down. That's just how it is. I mean, and and you know what? I've dealt with all kinds of consequences, you know. I've I've had to fire managers, and I'd had to walk away from record deals, and you know, booking agents, and all kinds of situations. That you know, of course, they
0: they totally affected me. And you don't have you don't have moments of doubt after you make those decisions.
1: Well, you have to be pretty confident to make those decisions. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, otherwise you're, you're just reckless. You know what I mean? If, if you don't think that kind of stuff through, like, and, you know, you, you have to have faith in yourself that there's a better situation for you out there. I think that's what stops most people from changing anything in their life is that they either think that they can't do something better or that they don't deserve something better. And I've gotten over both of those
0: when do you get over those
1: sobriety really sure oh definitely i mean come on like you know I, I who who in their right mind like gets up the night after a bender you yeah. know whether whether it's drink or drugs or whatever and wakes up and goes i feel great today i have the confidence yeah. to take over the world right. you curl up in a ball Right, <laughs> like right. you can't do shit when you when that's your your center of gravity like you can't take on the world like that sure so that's what gave it to me. I mean, well, like, you said
0: it's a reset button, right? It was a it was a reset button for you. I'm absolutely. just trying to think of. it. I'm trying to. I guess I'm selfishly trying to apply it to my own life, right? <laughs> um, this isn't always about you, Tommy, right? <laughs> it's all good. There's two people in this podcast. Actually, there's a third, and she's uh, lurking with a camera, but lurking very nicely, we should say. Um, and uh, uh, you know how if you how do you get that perspective? How do you how do you zoom out and go, hey, this isn't. I'm going to, I'm going to proceed with confidence and I'm going to proceed with, um, with the realization that I'm actually better off if I don't go down this negative path. You know, I mean,
1: you, you just, you have to trust yourself. And I mean, you know, you can't trust anybody else before you trust yourself. I mean, like, you know, of, of course, you know, you see these people and they're like conspiracy theory lunatics and they, they don't trust the government and they don't trust, you know, anything. And they'll, they'll sit down with you and they will dismantle any construct that exists just for the sake of doing it because they don't trust anything. And it all goes back to the fact that they don't trust themselves. Yeah. And and you know, not everybody's that like much of a wingnut that they like have to argue everything, but you know, you can you can see it when you talk to people and and you hear in their voice that they're not even sure about what they're doing. So why would you let somebody like that get under your skin cuz you already know that there. I mean, maybe this is. Just, maybe I've just taken too much LSD, and I can see underneath all the layers of everything now. Maybe that's like, the lesson.
0: <laughs> I mean, Jesus, you did it. Steve Jobs did it. I mean, you guys both ended up all right. You know, I mean, Steve Jobs obviously not recently, but you know, up until that point. Sure. Well, I mean, you know,
1: being able to to think outside the box and to look at things in a different perspective is a, a huge asset. And right. that is not something that we're taught in school. They don't teach that kind of creative thinking in school. They don't even teach that kind of creative thinking at a university, you know? Like, you you have to come to that on your own. And I'm just lucky that I got that by the hands of Derek Carter and Frankie Knuckles and, you know, like the, the greats. I mean, that was all passed down to me not just as a life lesson, but, you know— I worked that shit out on a dance floor. Did you get into Kevin Saunderson and Dirk May and those guys? I got to see all of them play in, like, 91 in Detroit, like, in, in like, old bowling alleys. I mean, unbelievable shit. Like, I mean, that was was life-changing stuff, you know? I mean, being on those dance floors at 3 o'clock in the morning where, you know, you are literally fighting fighting for your mind you know like you're on psychedelics your eyes are closed you're listening to techno you're standing in front of a speaker stack like you know the sound is so loud you can barely like stand up because it's literally if you pause it'll blow you down because it's that loud and your eyes are closed and that music is just working your body and it's working your mind and it becomes like almost, it's like a, it's like a, a, gosh, I can't, you know, I guess the best way to describe it, really, it's, it's like surfing. I mean, that, that's, that's the best comparison that I can that I put to it. You know, it's, it's surfing, it's karate, it's, you know, you're literally processing this music in not only a, a mental way, but in a physical way. And you have to work that music out. And that it all comes down to rhythm. And as we all know, I mean, rhythm goes back to the beginning of the planet. You know what I mean? Everything comes down to rhythm. And once you understand that, that's what makes me able to go into a room and go, yeah, it's all off in here. I'm out. You know what I mean? Like right. you just know, you can feel it. You, you feel, I mean, not to sound like an absolute lunatic, but like you feel the vibrations of the room and you know what you're up against. And, you know, I mean, the difference is, you know, I do a lot of talks at ADE and at, at all these music conferences. And, you know, when you walk in those rooms, you feel that everybody is there with an open mind. It's a blank canvas, You can feel that. You feel every single person in the room is there to listen to you. And that has a very particular feeling. When you go, when you walk into somewhere and there's someone who is just adversarial and just like literally has cotton in their ears and they're not there to listen to you. Like that's not, you just know, you can feel it. You just get out. Pull the
0: ripcord. Like, see ya. Bounce. (laughs) I was thinking I was uh, I was just in as we talked about earlier, I was just in Detroit over the weekend and walked into this spot called the TV lounge, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, very, very cool. It used to be a barber shop and um, after hours club for the African American elite in Detroit and basically since the last six and years has been a massive electronic music destination. I walked in there, there was Chicago House uh, playing in one room. There was an incredible kind of Detroit techno, a kid named Kevin um, Reynolds playing there. Mm. Um, and the dancers were African-American men in their early 50s. And, uh, you know, like women in their late 50s and uh, dressed to the nines. And, and, and I just thought, this scene has aged, but these people are still here. You know, how powerful is that?
1: But that existed back in the, at those raves. We would be downstairs in the main ballroom of like an old dilapidated theater. Yeah. But upstairs was all, every, everyone would be dressed to the nines and they would all be dancing to Deep, Deep House. Crazy. So that hasn't changed. That's a very Detroit thing. Yeah. Like, it's a, that's wonderful you say that. It brings back good memories and it makes me happy to think that that is not, that is unmoved.
0: Yeah. We're
1: 25 years later. You just,
0: you just picture, I mean, you see the, you see the uh, EDC uh, photos and footage from EDC and it's like chicks in halter tops sucking on lollipops, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and you think, okay, that's electronic music. That's the electronic music scene. And you go to a place like Detroit and it's, you know, it's older African-American men just lost in the music in a former barbershop. I mean, that's, that's kind of speaks to the community, I guess, and just how, how far it really spreads.
1: Well, I mean, I I think that, you know, one of the things that I pride myself in is that electronic music is so, it lacks boundaries in a good way. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 there is no stopping this music and it, it spans from, you know, it's been around for a long time, so of course you're going to get people that are a bit older, and you're going to get people who are, you know, they're they're doing their thing, and that you know they're they're doing you know they're going to the loft in New York City and dancing to, to disco records. But just as that's going on, you know, you go one borough over in New York, and you've got you know 17 year old kids in a warehouse listening to 180 bpm music that's blowing their brains out, you know, like that's incredible. Like and all of that coexists. So w- we've really cultivated an ecosystem that is very healthy that is going to continue for generations and that makes me very happy because there's there's going to be a legacy you know, all of this music
0: is going to get handed down and it is going to get um, revered. Now seems to be a good time to mention the fact that you've got a show on Red Bull TV called After the Raves, which is kind of your musical journey uh, or or going around the world, uh, meeting the various auteurs of electronic music uh, from uh, Fatboy Slim in the UK to the clubs of Ibiza. Uh, is this your legacy?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I had a, I had a very... I developed a friendship with Danny Lee, who's the, who's the director. And the two of us said, if we don't do this, someone else is going to do this, and they're going to fuck it up. So out of preservation, it was a necessity to do this show. And it turned into a real passion project. Not that it wasn't in the beginning, but I mean, it, it, I, I watch these shows and I am so proud to be able to take these stories to the world and to show these stories to people in a way that, you know, sure, electronic music is the background of these stories, but these are real stories. We get into it with people. And it gets really under the layers and we get intimate with all of the people that, that, that I interview. And, and I was able to extract stories out of their lives that almost every interview ended with them saying to me, that is the first time I ever discussed this, that and the other thing. And I would get a laundry list of like things that they had never talked about before. But I was doing it peer-to-peer. It wasn't like they were talking to a journalist. Right. You know, I mean, it, it was, hey, we've, we have this shared experience. And I would tell them stories about me, and they would tell me stories about them. And in that transaction came really beautiful stuff. And, and I don't think that you have to be an EDM fan to be a fan of this show, because this show is about humanity.
0: It's just humanity with a great soundtrack. (laughs) Excellent. I think we're going to end it on that, because I can't think of a better way to close. Uh, Thank you very much, Tommy. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Yes! Wow, that was that was interesting. That was great, actually. Uh, what an interesting fellow Tommy Sunshine is! What a well-spoken storyteller, and he certainly laid his soul bare to us at point. So, so much thanks for that. Uh, that. Was that was a wonderful cast, wonderful, wonderful session with him. You've probably been listening to us on the iTunes. Please know we're also available on our pod partner hosting platform, ACAST. Uh, big shout out to them. And, of course, head on over to the redbulletin.com, or just simply RedBulletin.com for some great stories. Uh, it's basically an expanded version of this podcast. Beautiful words, beautiful images and video. And, um, you know, we're done here. We'll probably just see you next time.